0: Welcome to The Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Boa, and this week I am on holiday in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. As I am enjoying a week of sun, sand, and good friends, I am handing off to my good friend Nason Mahbubi, who was on the show a few weeks ago. As I mentioned then, he often convenes really great conversations on Twitter spaces and other places like on YouTube. And last week, he had one such program on Twitter spaces, I guess X spaces now, co-sponsored by the U.S.-China Perception Monitor and featuring Yahweh Liu of the Carter Center, who oversees the Perception Monitor, uh, and also joined by some of my very favorite people in the space, including Anna Ashton of the Eurasia Group, uh, Robert Daly of the Kissinger Institute. Rory Daniels of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and Ian Johnson, formerly of the New York Times, and now of the Council on Foreign Relations. It is a wide-ranging, excellent conversation centered on whether the Biden administration has reset its China policy, and it also includes a discussion of what happened to China's ex-Foreign Minister Qin Gang. You will enjoy this, and thanks to Nathan for letting me run this. See you next time, and uh, meanwhile, I hope you really dig this.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode in an ongoing series um, titled U.S.-China Experts Chat, uh, which is hosted by me, Nasan Mapubi, from the University of Pennsylvania and co-sponsored by the U.S.-China Perception Monitor. Uh, many thanks to Yao Liu, who you see up on stage. Uh, this is, I think, the sixth or seventh, maybe the eighth conversation we've had in this series going back a little bit over a year. Um, and you can see all of the prior conversations on the series website, which is hosted by the US China Perception Monitor. It says something I tweeted out the other day in case you don't have the link. And we'll put the recording of this conversation up as well. Our theme for today is supposed to be Is the Biden administration resetting US China relations? Um, which is an important and uh, weighty theme in and of itself, but we may be hijacked a little bit, at least at the start, by a sub-theme of what in the world just happened to China's foreign minister. Um, That's in some ways a maybe more juicy conversation, but we're going to try to link it back to our main theme um, as we get through uh, some initial introductions and then uh, talk a little bit about all the rumors. So that's the plan. We're going to go for about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half at the most. Um, Some terrific people in the audience. And uh, if any of you would like to join the conversation as we get further along, please just raise your hand um, and I will try to bring you up on stage uh, to join us. But let me first have everyone here who is up on stage already introduce themselves. And why don't you go first,
2: Anna? Sure thing. I'm Anna Ashton. I'm a China director at Eurasia Group, and um, I focus heavily on U.S.-China issues and uh, developments in the relationship, and more broadly that affect uh, corporate interests in China. Great,
1: Anna. Um, Ian Johnson just joined us, so let me ask Ian to introduce himself. Hey, I'm Ian Johnson.
3: I'm a former journalist who lived in China for a number of years, a correspondent for newspapers. I'm now the senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City.
4: Great, Ian. Um, Robert Daly. Hi, I- I'm Robert Daly. I direct the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center.
5: Great to have you, Robert. I'm Yahweh Liu. Hi, uh, this is Yahweh Liu. I'm a senior advisor for China at the Carter Center. Uh, as Naishang mentioned, I also manage. Uh, u.s china perception monitor websites in both chinese and english languages and rory daniels
6: hi everyone rory daniels i'm the managing director of the asia society policy institute and also a senior fellow in its center for china analysis uh, my background is in u.s china diplomacy and cross taiwan Strait relations
1: super okay let's let's get going here um Let's start with the obvious question, what just happened? And I want to put a big caveat uh, on everything that everyone's about to hear, which is that probably none of us really knows. So I think that's important to say at the outset, but we might have some educated guesses, uh, and also we might be able to read uh, some implications out of this story. So Ian, you've already published a short piece about this for the Council of Foreign Relations. Why don't I give you the first crack at this? What just happened? Um, so it's Chingang,
3: uh, right? I mean, I guess the short answer is we don't exactly know because none of the explanations found complete, to me at least. Um, the fact that he may have had an affair with a TV anchor and may have had a child. And, you know, there's all, there's all these rumors that you hear um, that could be true. But I would also assume that the Ministry of State Security w- was well informed of this and people, relevant people knew about it. I doubt it was a secret, really, in the upper echelons of government, because I don't think anybody there really has a private life. Um, so that doesn't quite make sense. Something happened that we probably won't find out about for months or, or even years. But, you know, it eventually will come out, I guess. I guess the key takeaway for me is that this is another sort of bad look for Xi. It's a very public um, problem, climb down um, that he's had to endure. Um, and I think this is something that pretty much all Chinese people can see. I mean, one was um, supporting Putin just before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Now, that that's sort of been spun a, in a way that most Chinese people don't really care about. I don't think it looks badly on Xi Jinping, but... I think the COVID lockdown, the way that was handled the last year of it um, reflected badly on the, the the declining economy is something that all people can feel. And then this thing, even though it's not going to have it isn't as lasting as, so, say, those other two issues, I think it's still another sort of bad look a public humiliation, if you will. And I think it does raise questions about uh, his leadership style, especially now that he is ensconced with a third term and and perhaps surrounded by yes people we don't know but it doesn't seem um to bode well for the future these could be just blips and maybe everything will be smooth sailing but it doesn't seem to be the second the new era the third term doesn't seem to be going as well as the first two terms and i guess that's what i would be you know looking for to see if this is indeed a pattern
1: so ian let me just ask you a follow-up here so you uh you know, you lay out an overall case for how this incident fits into an assessment of Cheek. But with this particular incident, um, you don't seem to even credit marginally the possibility that it really was some kind of a health issue. So does that mean that you're sure that it wasn't a health issue? Like, is that completely implausible to you? Nothing's implausible, but I would have thought that if,
3: if it were simply that, for a very public official like this that there would have been some sort of a report unless it's something really embarrassing like syphilis or something like that. I would assume that they would maybe just say that he had a brain aneurysm or something like that and isn't able to work anymore. That's, I mean, illnesses strike people. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, really. Um, I think he's not like the senior paramount leader. So to be ill, to fall ill and have to retire or whatever would just be a normal sort of thing and it wouldn't have to become a crisis. Now, maybe you know, maybe that's all it was, but um, but it just seems like it doesn't quite fit the, the playbook exactly. But maybe other people have different views on that.
1: I would say that I, I tend to share your skepticism, but the people who have argued it to me quite forcefully in a few instances have said that this is the playbook for when a senior leader falls ill, that they're extremely secretive about it and they're not... Changing from that general playbook. I wonder if anyone in the audience in the group here thinks that that is a plausible argument. Rory, I see that you've unmuted. So maybe you want to weigh in.
6: Yeah, I just want to give the kind of devil's advocate argument here, which is that if you believe that the health of the senior Chinese leadership is a national security issue and a national security secret, maybe you don't want to set a precedent of rushing out with what the health Issue is perhaps before it's completely resolved. Um, I don't know that that really, you know, that I put a lot of weight behind that in this one instance, but I do think that it, you know, the secrecy at the highest levels of Chinese leadership about the, you know, the health and the inner workings of personnel appointments um, is a feature of the Chinese system. So it doesn't strike me as, you know, 100% implausible that this could still be a health issue.
1: Robert, Yahweh, what do you guys think?
4: Well, both things could be true. Uh, it may have been that the knowledge that Xi Jinping was about to fire him made him sick, right? We, 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 we don't know. Uh, but there's a sense in which, going back to Ian's original point, it may not matter that much because the Chinese people don't seem to think that he was sick. And, you know, the rumor mills are flying. There's the alleged love child and affair. There's, uh, you know, some some people who claim that he may have been a spy. There's ridiculous stuff out there, which I don't think is is true. I think it was probably a, a political problem of some kind. Uh, but again, even if it was health, the reputational damage is already, you know, as great as if it had been some kind of scandal, because the people are speculating. It's known that he was advanced through the system more quickly than he otherwise would have been because of Xi Jinping's personal patronage. And so the hit to the party and the hit to Xi, if there is one, if that's the right way to put it, uh, is the same in either instance.
5: Could could I uh, just uh, quickly... Go ahead, Yahweh. Yeah, I think the most, as far as I'm concerned, the most uh, plausible uh, reason of his uh, disappearance or being disappeared is probably the actual marital affair seized by his enemy inside and outside the foreign ministry and forcing uh, the top leadership uh, to make a decision. So I, I think it could be uh, political. I saw a Chinese-language article uh, saying uh, that Qinggang uh, is Peng reincarnated, and that gave a list of reasons uh, that uh, he did things politically unacceptable, uh, such as uh, allowing the UN China UN representative to vote uh, for the resolution that contains uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, dismissing Zhao Lijian from his post, uh, and saying that even though uh, China-Russia relationship has no ceiling, but it does have bottom line. But I I think it's less political, it's more uh, the affair thing, uh, because when people use this, uh, you know something has to be done because he's such a uh, sort of, you know, a VIP in that uh, under the public eye. Uh, it's less political also because while he was dismissed as foreign minister, you know, he is still he remains a, a state counselor. You go to the state uh, council website, uh, his name and his you know two sentence bio is is still there. I would like to think this is political, but uh, you know, of the few meetings I had with him. I, I think politically he follows uh, the top leader very very closely. I also want to say uh, that this uh, incident is certainly a, a big attack and assault uh, on superiority of the so-called uh, China model you know that uh, we we are such a, a you know good government uh, we're so good at governance we're so good at selecting our leaders and and that, is uh, irreparable damage uh, to to China.
1: I want to see what Anna uh, has to say here, but um, I do want to note that the timeline um, indicates that whatever happened happened suddenly, because they would not have put him out in front of the entire world to meet Tony Blinken um, on June nineteenth if they knew something was bubbling up, I think. I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption. And he disappears June 25th, I think. It's only like four or five days after that. So whatever it is, um, and of course, that could be consistent with a health issue. But if it is something political, it must have just been massive and big and happened really quickly. Otherwise, it just seems Hard to imagine that they would have put him out in front of Bl- in front of the world to to greet Lincoln. But Anna, what do you think?
2: Well, you know, um, I think that we're not going to know, <laughs> and I think that we will continue to probably hear um, that it had something to do with health because that is an explanation that Wang Yi himself has offered in in diplomatic engagement with the United States, um, but that's not the official. Ex- Explanation, And that's one of the reasons why I find it implausible that it's that it's truly the bottom line explanation, uh, because if that were the reason, it w- it's an easy thing to give the Ministry of Foreign Affairs some choppy points instead of leaving them to kind of squirm in anticipation of questions that they know they can't answer. Um, whatever the reason is, I think, you know, the bottom line is that uh, we have Wang Yi back in place now. And so we're we're turning the page, and I think that is uh, what Beijing hopes the world will do: sort of let this go, let it become history, and focus on moving forward. And and that's one of the reasons why Wang Yi was selected because he's already done the job for a considerable period of time. Moreover, I think it it's indicative of an interesting uh, trend that that we've all seen in other ways, uh, reflected in various developments in China in recent years. But, um, you know, Wang Yi was already uh, the director of the CCP Central Committee Foreign Affairs Commission office, which is uh, in charge of policy, right? Under the close supervision of Xi Jinping. So he was already doing the more important job. Um, The foreign ministry is kind of the the implementer of the policy. So now we have uh, somebody wearing both the party hat and the state hat, and that presumably should ensure that um, the the implementation, the messaging is more in lockstep with what the party wants the policy to be. Um, and we're seeing that at other agencies as well. You know, Sheng as both the secretary, the party secretary and the governor of the People's Bank of China, um, you know, we've got that at the National Administration for Financial Regulation, at the China Securities and Regulatory Commission. Um, so I think, I think a big takeaway of all of this is it is another step in a larger process of um, the state being subsumed by the party. Great, Anna. So that at least bridges us to start talking
1: um, a little less about just guessing what happened to uh, former Foreign Minister Gong and, and maybe start inching towards the main theme of our discussion tonight. So, Anna, something that you said that um, raised the question in my mind that maybe is interesting to hear everyone's uh, views on is, does it really matter who the foreign minister is um, in this system? So, does it really make a difference if it's Gong or Wang Yi, or, you know, there was even some rumor that uh, Liu Jianchao was going to be appointed foreign minister? Does that individual make... Really, much of a difference in terms of the way that Chinese foreign policy is presented to the world or, or formulated? And maybe for that, I'll, I'll ask, well, Anna, you've unmuted. So why don't you go first? And I'll ask
2: <laughs> the others what they think. I do have a thought about it. Um, you know, in terms of the substance of China's foreign policy, my inclination is to think it, it doesn't matter terribly much. Um, Xi Jinping is in charge of this, it, it's also really up to Xi Jinping. Uh, Wang Yi is closely working with him and has been closely working with him in this capacity. Um, I don't think we're going to see a change of substance, a change of strategy, but um, we may see a change of tone because Wang Yi was certainly known uh, during his time as foreign minister for a more abrasive diplomatic style than what Qing Dong brought to the role. Um, And we saw that in Blinken's meetings with both men when he was in Beijing in June, there were very different atmospheres for those two meetings. So it, it is possible, I think, that, that Wang Yi could return to the helm and usher in something of a resurgence of bull warrior messaging, and that that could complicate the Biden administration's engagement efforts and impede progress.
1: That's very interesting. And I want to see what others think about that. And I just want to note that it isn't a little ironic because Gong did have the reputation going into the job of U.S. ambassador, ambassador to the U.S., of being a wolf warrior. And yet, it seems as if many people now think that over the course of being ambassador or even during his time as foreign minister, somehow that reputation didn't stick to him as much as it seems to be sticking with Wang Yi. Uh, let me see what uh, the others think. Um, maybe, Ian, you know, you were saying earlier that you know the personnel would really reflect on Xi. So do you think it matters, you know, who among these people is serving as foreign minister? and do theres do the ways that they present themselves seem different to you in the way that Anna would just suggest? Yeah, I mean, they clearly there was a change of tone when uh, when Xin Gong
3: took over. I have to say though, as a former journalist, he was the uh, foreign ministry spokesperson. um. About you know more than a decade ago, and he was one of the most sarcastic, unpleasant spokespeople that they've ever had. And they've had a, a whole row of them um, who haven't been all that you know pleasant to deal with. So I think a lot of it is just the tone that they're told to to adopt, um, and and what they're instructed to from the from the top. I mean, in a way, they're like hired guns. You know, they're 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 told to do a certain thing. And I don't think there's much leeway. Now, you know, they may have you sometimes see some some uh, ambassador who seems to go off the rails and starts insulting a country where they're they're based and then they back off because maybe they went too far or something like that. But um, overall, I, I, I think that probably if the message now is we need to make nice to the United States because we need to revive the economy, we've got too many domestic problems and we don't need to have another problem overseas. Then Wang Yi will just continue that as well.
1: Yahweh, you uh, did have a webinar with Qing Dong soon after he was um, installed as the, the ambassador to the US. And I wonder if you think that he somehow presented himself differently in that role than the way that he presented himself in the context that Ian was just
5: describing. I think, in terms of decision making, final decision making, Uh, Who is the foreign minister probably doesn't matter. But I think uh, style, uh, character, personality, they do matter. Uh, Although Qing was known as a wolf warrior, uh, of the recent ambassadors uh, to the U.S., I I think he probably is the one that I met the most time. Uh, You know, I I met him online, you know, you mentioned, and also five other times in person, you know, in New York. Uh, in Oregon County, California, in Iowa, uh, and in DC multiple times. So he comes across um, as more uh, friendly and and uh, I think there was uh, in New York at the national committee Gala uh, Geng Shuang was there and people were saying, Oh Geng Shuang you're you're a wolf warrior but Shuang then said, I'm a little wolf warrior. The bigger wolf warrior is Qingang himself. They were all at the head table. So Qinggang is someone I think is capable of self-deprecating humor, uh, you know more so than other foreign ministers. You know I I continue to hope that this is a politically motivated incident rather than a lifestyle one. Uh, but I I I think it you know uh, Xi Jinping certainly doesn't want to dismiss him. That's why uh, it has so long for a final decision. Uh, even this decision is not. It's very messy. It's not clean, right? He is erased from the foreign ministry website, but he's still at the state council uh, website. And also in the foreign ministry, their prior uh, incident, I think Shen Guofang was a rising star. Uh, he went down because of the same thing. Lo Yucheng probably was going to be the foreign minister, and uh, he made the same mistake. Uh, so I heard. Uh, so Qinggao is not the first one that had committed You know this less vital mistakes, but still it's a mistake that cannot be tolerated.
1: Yeah, for what it's worth, I think the the question of, you know, the website is extremely murky right now. I think some people are saying that he was erased. Some people are saying that it's being added back. So I just, I don't know how much weight on um, the website can hold. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it does seem like people are starting to be a little bit more careful about what, how much they're placing on what the website
5: is showing at any given moment in time? No, talking about the websites, I, I think it's very interesting. So, I just checked the foreign ministry website. Under the whole foreign minister, there's nothing. It's under construction. So, there's nothing there. Clearly, the foreign ministry has not been uh, prepared uh, for this. And at the state council website, he's still there. The picture is there. And talking about, you know, you mentioned one this happened, this happened uh, suddenly, but in the Chinese media rumor mill, so there, there was a picture uh, of a state council working meeting. Uh, that picture was uh, dated uh, June the 9th, and Qingdao was in the picture. Uh, if you look at his body language, he's so different. Uh, so clearly on June the 9th, something has already happened. You can see that uh, from that picture. And also, uh, I saw uh, a Weibo message as well as on Twitter saying uh, he was supposed to go to the BRICS uh, foreign ministry meeting at the end of May, but he didn't go. Uh, and and uh, Ma Zhaoxi went uh, won there instead. And the other interesting thing is uh, the Weibo of Fu Xiaotian is still there. And all the rumors uh, on WeChat, they're, they're, they're just there. Nobody tries to censor them, so I think there are two factors uh, that are in play here. Certainly, there's one group of people who want to m- make him look as bad as possible. Yeah, the,
1: the the fact that the rumors have been allowed to circulate is is um, quite uh, maybe telling. But let's let's push forward a little bit here, and I'm going to ask Robert uh, a new question rooted in something that uh, that's that I think I forget who brought it up earlier, um either be Anna or Ian, but uh, basically the idea that whoever is in that role, whether it was Qing Gong or now Wang Yi, is now being um tasked with repairing to some extent the relationship with the US because there's this perception that the economy is doing bad. Do you think that's right, Robert? Do you think that there is, at least at some level, um, coming from the Chinese leadership, the sense that they should at least stabilize the relation with the U.S. to some degree because of the concerns about the economy? Well, I don't think it's it's just the economy. Those are obviously
4: there. You know, they've known they were facing a secular slowdown and a need to restructure for a very long time. Then you had you know the shocks of the trade war, of COVID, multiple shocks. Uh, isolation because of their support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and then perhaps most importantly, the, the demographic crisis, which they knew about hitting a little earlier and harder than they had anticipated. But, but beyond the domestic economy, things haven't really been going their way. You know, it's not just Russia. We've got four more bases that we can visit than the Philippines. You've had uh, South Korea lean heavily toward the United States and Japan. You've had Japan say that its interests would be involved if China moved against Taiwan. You have the strengthening of the AUKUS and the Quad. Uh, You have the really remarkable record of the Biden administration of keeping international attention on China, even as the war in Ukraine continues. And so whatever they see as having been their policy for the past several years, uh, hasn't been working even from their own point of view. So I do think it is likely, and I've actually heard this from a few visiting Chinese scholars recently, that they're looking for some kind of shift or timeout in the relationship. But that doesn't seem to involve a reassessment of the threat levels that China faces or what China's goals or, or tactics in the medium term are going to be. Uh, it seems to be merely a stylistic shift. and And as you say, a search for stabilization without anything smacking of concession or
1: compromise in it. Very interesting. Rory, I want to see if you agree with that. Do you think that um, there is this real sort of success record uh, from the part of the Biden administration in putting the pressure on China in a way that sort of requires them to hack in some way. I mean, it could be performatively or it could be somewhat substantively, but they have to react to the fact that the Biden administration has done a fairly good job of putting pressure on them in, on top of all the other things that we know have sort of afflicted their economy and society of late.
6: Um, yeah, I mean, that's a interesting theory. Um, I'm not sure that I agree that Beijing wants to reset the tone in the U.S.-China relationship because of the pressure that the U.S. has put on China, but certainly China hasn't found that its strategy internationally is working very well. And that's not just because of the U.S. I mean, it's also because of major missteps that China has made um, over the last five or six years uh, or longer. Um, I do think this tone reset is not new. It started last November with Xi and Biden sitting down at the Bali summit. And, you know, I think that I'm, I'm not surprising anyone on this panel by saying that when the leader of China sets sets a tone from the top, everybody falls in line with it until the leader of China sets a new tone from the top. Um, and despite a lot of incidents that, you know, have happened in, in over the last, you know, six to eight months, including ones we've discussed on previous versions of this, Twitter spaces, um, like the balloon incident, you know, China set kind of the conditionality of getting the U.S.-China relationship back on track in a way. It said, you know, we need to have these high-level meetings. We need to do them in Beijing. And the U.S. has responded. So for this to all kind of come to a head, you know, with Qing Gong and Wang Yi's replacement at a time when, you know, China was ready perhaps to kind of like declare victory on getting the U.S.-China relationship reset in exactly the way that China wanted and required it to be um, does, I think, create kind of a new wrinkle in stabilizing U.S.-China relations. But on the other hand, um, I don't, you know, see the reset as really a, a short-term trend. Um, it's part of this longer-term trend. And, and the audience isn't just the U.S. The audience is also the global community that doesn't want to suffer the consequences of either, you know, pressure from China or the U.S. to pick a side. Um, so I think that you know Xi Jinping is is dealing with a relatively poor hand to play right now for lots of reasons that are of his own making and beyond his control. Um, mm-hmm. But but that the pressure from the U.S. is probably not the definitive factor in um, in deciding to pursue a reset.
1: And so, then, what is the definitive factor in your view, Rory?
6: I think it's probably the economic, the economic downturn, um, which is the confluence of factors between, you know, COVID lockdowns, um, uh, the you know, Russia's war in Ukraine itself, and the pressure that that's put on the global economy, um, and any number of decisions that China has made internally about its economic restructuring, like how it's going to deal with its debt problems, all of these things. So, I think that that's probably. The major reason. It seems to me that despite, you know, an idea that's been kind of floating around the think tank sphere, um, that China gets aggressive when its economy goes down because it needs to shift attention to nationalism. And in, in reality, you know, when China's economy is doing really poorly, it seeks a benign external environment in which it can kind of deal with its internal problems without having the attention split with its external problems. And I think that's probably more the case in Xi Jinping's China than in other, um, you know, leadership styles, because Xi Jinping has concentrated so much decision making um, within himself and his inner circle that it's much much harder to do that kind of split attention, rapid reaction to things going on both externally and uh, internally and externally at the same time.
1: So, so let me now actually pose the main question that is the supposedly the theme of tonight's uh, program is the Biden administration resetting U.S.-China relations. So I think my hearing was that both Robert and Rory, um, you both sort of suggested that China has been sort of seeking the stabilization. I think you have different rationales, but I think you're both agreed that it's sort of China as the first mover. But there's a lot of criticism of these uh, trips that uh, U.S. Uh, officials, starting with Tony Blinken and then Janet Yellen, John Kerry, um, have made uh, just the past few weeks in the U.S. domestic political context, and I wonder if others on the stage think that that criticism is totally off base or or has some uh, sort of some point to it. But the I think the premise of that criticism is that it's the Biden administration who's trying uh, to you know, stabilized and the Chinese are kind of willing to accept their visits. So let me let me see if Ian wants to uh, weigh in here. Um is there a is there any, you know, merit to the criticism that uh, maybe especially is coming from the Republican Party that the Biden administration is doing too much to try to reset the relationship with the series of visits this summer?
3: Um, I mean of course the Republicans are gonna make that critique. Um, because they're just, you know, it, it's a, a partisan political issue. So no matter what the Biden administration does, they're going to critique it. I can I don't think there's much merit to the argument. I think certainly from the Biden administration's point of view, I got to sort of think that they want to get the relationship on a safe footing and sort of I'm just speculating here, but I, I would imagine sort of want to get it taken care of, so to speak, um, so that it doesn't become an election year issue. I mean, there's not much upside in foreign policy issues, don't have much upside in the United States, but they they could have some sort of downside. And if there were to some be some blow up in relations, um, that might hurt Biden next year. I think they just want to pave the way for some sort of a summit and, and, and make sure that things are going more or less okay in, in preparation for the election. I don't know, maybe this is completely off the wall, but it, it seems to me that they want to you know, get their get their relations more or less stabilized. And that seems to me like a legitimate goal, um, whether it's too many U.S. officials traveling to China or not. I mean, that is it is a little one sided in that in that regard. But it's worth I think it, it also shows the U.S. is really trying and globally it plays well in Europe that the United that, that the U.S. is doing that. I think there's other people, other people who are has to have to be considered in this as well. So it's helping to keep allies on board. Um, So I guess I would say that it's it's justified, yes.
1: Uh, Anna, Yahweh, what do you think? Do you think that it's the U.S. side that has been more the first mover or the primary mover in trying to stabilize things or the Chinese side, or are they both equally doing this and for roughly similar reasons, including that both sides are trying to convince the audiences in Europe and the global South that they're the responsible actor here.
5: I, I think uh, it was mentioned earlier last November. I think at that time, both sides, President Biden and President Xi, wanted to reset the relationship. But that effort obviously uh, was was uh, destroyed by, by the balloon thing. And this time around, I think it is... Uh, the U.S. side that took the initiative. You know, we all remember what Xi Jinping said uh, in March, you know, during the the Lianghui, that for the first time, you know, he named names. He blamed the U.S. uh, for this extraordinary difficult situation that China is facing. I think Paul Hame, you know, earlier Twitter space discussion also mentioned as far as the Chinese leadership is concerned, uh, they do not think U.S.-China relationship is repairable toward the end of the year, particularly after the balloon thing. And and so they're working hard on how to divide and conquer by offering uh, favorable terms to EU by approaching Central Asian countries and by going uh, to the BRICS and and also working on Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, approach. But while U.S. waived the other uh, branch, I, I think China was more than happy to take it because of all the difficulties uh, others have mentioned. So I am I, in support uh, of, of the argument that U.S. is taking the initiative, and also because of the, the political calendar. You know, the, the presidential election is going to be around the corner. You know, entering the primary in January, there's very little the administration can do, particularly when Biden is seeking reelection.
1: So we have two sets of different opinions here, which is great. And so, Anna, I'm going to let you be the tiebreaker and then let yep. the others maybe respond to each other's arguments. Um, but I don't know out, how we have uh... one set that have very clearly said that China is in a very weak position because of the economy um, and coming out of COVID. And China wants the reset and another set of arguments that have said that the U.S. has sought the reset. So what do you think?
2: Uh, I I think I'm going to be kind of an equivocator. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I I really agree with Yahweh that uh, China was the prime mover prior to the balloon incident, but the decision by the Biden administration to cancel Blinken's visit uh, as a result of the balloon, that kind of turned the tables. And then after that, the Biden administration has really had the burden of trying to get things going again. So I think it is the Biden administration who has carried more of the weight here in recent months. And as for, you know, what the thinking is, uh, I think Rory made an excellent point when talking about the fact that it's not just the U.S. audience that is it's not the, just the U.S. that is an audience uh, when China is considering its moves. Um, it's not just China that is an audience when the U.S. is considering its moves. You know, both of them have to think about this global audience and how to make the case that they are responsible powers, that they're being responsible managers of the relationship or doing their best to be. Um, both of them are courting closer cooperation with some of the exact same countries, especially in Europe, but but certainly not only in Europe. Um, and then from a domestic standpoint, I think the Biden administration uh, may be playing more of a long game right now than many hawk- hawkish Republicans in the sense that, yes, uh, politically, there's a lot to capitalize on in terms of um, popular fear and suspicion to do with China. But at the same time, um, you know, the center of gravity with most voters, I would argue, certainly an awful lot of them, especially the swing voters and conservative voters, um, is avoiding getting entangled into more foreign wars that cost U.S. treasure and prevent Washington from solving domestic problems. And by um, pushing engagement, the Biden administration can make the case that that's what it's doing. Um, but as for whether or not this represents a shift in in U.S. policy, I'm with, with Robert um, that this is more, you know, despite the fact that there is this growing emphasis on engagement, the Biden administration continues to be aimed, aiming less at um, trying to alter China's policies and more at building relations with allies and partners and um, trying to shore up U.S. competitiveness with this vision of a longer term competition.
1: I want to come back to Robert because a lot of people sort of riffed off of his initial points here, and I want to see if he wants to respond. But before, Robert, I ask you to do that, Anna... I just want to ask you one follow-up, because I think you have a good um, political mind, and I maybe disagree with you, and so I want to maybe push that a little bit and see if um, you know maybe I can uh, maybe push you off the perspective, or maybe you can push me off it, which is you sort of make it seem as if uh, engagement is good politics, but I think it's the opposite. I think, and I see this as someone who, as you well know, I generally tend to savor engagement, but the politics of being tough on China seem on the surface, to me at least, to be the winning politics right now. Like, So if the Biden administration is somehow signaling something like engagement, I would think they're doing that not because of the politics, but in spite of the politics, because they think they have a little bit of a window where they can afford to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's counterintuitive, but I actually think that engagement is good politics because of the fact that we have a um, a U.S. voter base that is trending more isolationist, not uh, more globalist, right? And um, there is a point past which hawkishness is not uh, does not serve, serve that interest very well. And we've certainly um, walked right up to the line, if not already crossed it, with um, with hawkish rhetoric from both parties, frankly. Um, and also the way that we are engaging stakeholders globally. So um, I think that there is an assessment by the White House that the rhetoric has gone too far, that it is not helpful to U.S. interests, and that there needs to be kind of a a pulling back from the edge, from the brink. And, And I also think there's likely an assessment that Uh, As the election draws nearer, there's going to be a really solid political case to make for that. Very interesting. So I wanted to ask everyone um, to weigh in on
1: this political question, uh, U.S. domestic politics. But before I do that, let me give Robert the floor to see if he wants to reply to all the comments after his initial intervention on on who was resetting the relationship. Sure. I, I think
4: maybe we're conflating two things that shouldn't be conflated. There's the question of who is the prime mover, and it does seem that the United States uh, is a little bit more ardent in wanting these discussions. But that is not the same as seeking a reset in the relationship in the way that the Republicans are accusing the Biden administration of doing. The the accusation is basically that the Biden administration is weakening, weakening, that it is lowering its threat perceptions, that maybe it will be accommodating of China. And I see no signs of that. I think that the Biden administration is reaching out for for three reasons that that we've discussed. One, to show to especially European allies that we've taken on board their concerns, that we manage the relationship well and tone down the rhetoric. Second, the Biden administration does truly feels that it's in a position of strength now. We know how much the Chinese side hates that term, but they feel that that, that they've had some successes. And then third, they genuinely want to stabilize the relationship in the ways that Anna was just describing. And if we bring in domestic politics, notice that the Biden administration uh, for its first two years was pretty worried about being accused of being weak on China by the Republicans. They're not so worried now. This administration has found its sea legs. They knew full well that with all of these meetings, the Republicans would come at them, and they're not worried about it. They feel like they're in a pretty good spot. The reason that I say uh, that the Biden administration is not seeking a reset or weakening. Notice when they say we want to stabilize this relationship. Stabilize it at what point? Right. They're not trying to improve the relationship. They're trying to try to to guarantee that there won't be conflicts while continuing what Biden calls extreme competition. What I think of as a cold war footing. It's stabilizing that meaning reducing the chances of conflict, they're not backing off positions. So just again, being the prime mover
1: doesn't mean that you are a resetter. So Robert, let me ask you a follow-up and then go back to everyone. Um, I think what you were just saying is consistent with um, a perspective that I've been hearing as well recently, which is that there is a disconnect between the appearance of these three um, cabinet-level officials I guess John Kerry's cabinet level as well, uh, going to China, and what is actually on the table for discussion. Where maybe there is a certain line of critique of them going, but um, the Chinese critique seems to be, well, you're coming, but you're not actually offering any anything beyond just a visit itself. Do you think that's right? That well, th- that th- all they're really th- doing is just visiting and not really backing off on any of the yeah, hard edge positions. Absolutely
4: right. They're they're not going as supplicants, they're not going, you know, cap in hand. Uh, and they're not going to, you know, reify the Chinese view that all friction in US-China relations is the fault of the United States. What more really could they do at this point? And a couple of people have mentioned how important the signal is that they're sending to the rest of the world that in fact the United States has lowered the temperature on rhetoric and is going to China, is making that step. And that has very important diplomatic
1: value. But as far as I can tell, they've given nothing away. So that's a really interesting bifurcation. Let me see what everyone else thinks. Does it seem right to you that it's this bifurcation between, on the one hand, sending uh, these three officials over and having that imagery, including, you know, what people have criticized, sort of like Janet yelling, bowing three times and sort of silly things like that, um, but on the other hand, actually holding the line on very kind of competitive positions in every respect and not really backing off any of that. Does that bifurcation and Robert's analysis sound right to everyone
5: else? I I think it's probably- It sounds right to me. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think there are more than just uh, diplomatic uh, sort of uh, initiatives. Uh, I think for John Kerry, to get China to work together, uh, you know, to to get China to be agreeable to decompartmentalize issues, right? You know, yes, we have disagreement on all the other issues, but we can sit down and talk about uh, climate change. So he's not there just for a visit. He has issues of substance to discuss. I think so is the case of Janet Yellen. You know, he wants China uh, to work on the debt issues for the developing countries. He wants China to continue to buy U.S. bonds. Uh, He wants China to contribute to the global economic uh, prosperity. And like uh, Blinken, I think more so uh, Janet Yellen, is to tell the Chinese people, we Americans, you know, we don't want to contain the rise of China. We want all of you uh, to have a happy life. You know, what we're doing now uh, Is you know it's basically as if it's related to national security, then we have we have to do it. So I, I disagree a little bit with with uh, Robert uh, on on these. So they're, they're for issues of substance.
1: But but Yahweh. So let's say if you put yourself in this you know the mindset of the Chinese side, the Chinese foreign minister. So they would say, okay, we're not happy about the tariffs. We're not happy about the export controls. We're not happy about you know the AUKUS alliance, and you know the the, the squeeze from you know the uh, other allies and partners in the region. None of that's changing, right? So if they were to say, "What are you actually going to change your position on?" I don't think we're offering that much.
5: No, the U.S. is is not offering uh, that much uh, for sure. But you know, as long as U.S. does not close the door, as as long as U.S. is not doing what the recent article in Foreign Affairs, you know, to advocate a, a hard break between U.S. and China, uh, then, you know, China will continue to have access to the American marketplace. And, and, and you know, all these relations are economic and trade relations are still going to be there. Now, in terms of U.S. building up the alliance, I don't think anything uh, China can do, but this is also what is uh, worrying uh, European countries and, and other countries that are not part of AUKUS or, or QUAD uh, because U.S. does appear to force every other country on the globe to choose sides. And and uh, so that, that's my quick response. Anna, you wanted to jump in earlier, and I think
1: this trade point is a good one to push you on. So do you think that the Chinese side is thinking, okay, they're so enough access to the American market that um, they don't have to be that concerned?
2: I think both sides are constrained to an extent by the realities of, of economic interdependence um, with, with some people uh, less burdened by that consideration than others, but with leadership generally burdened by that consideration. Um, and maybe also with uh, some policymakers on both sides discounting worries that they perhaps shouldn't discount because of their certainty that um, trade and investment is going to continue to be what the business community for so long likes to call the ballast of the relationship. Um, But I really don't think that that's, that's where the Biden administration's coming from here. I agree with Robert that a primary goal of these meetings is more meetings for the sake of of just restoring robust communication. Um, we're not seeing even advertisements to expect deliverables from any of these meetings just yet. Um, when we do hear about potential deliverables, um, you know, they they tend to be focused on what I would say are relatively small things, although they're important to the people that they affect, like um, increasing the number of flights, direct flights between the United States and China. But then there are also things like uh, things like yali mentioned, economic cooperation um, to address debt burdens. And um, then I think the most important thing that the Biden administration is aiming for is a restoration of defense dialogue, of high level military to military engagement. And that one strikes me as as genuinely consequential because uh, we haven't had high-level engagement since Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last August. And in the interim, as before that, uh, China has continued to ramp up its gray zone activities in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. We've had at least two near collisions in the last couple of months that we know about, uh, one in the air over the South China Sea, one at sea and the Taiwan Strait. And um, if one of those incidents with high stakes maneuvers were to result in a collision and actually um, cause the death of service members, especially if it caused the deaths of U.S. service members, I think it would take um, the American public from a position of not really considering the prospect of war with China to um, being ready to go to war with China without necessarily understanding what the consequences are. Um, So I think it is significant that there was a meeting between uh, Ambassador Xie feng and Eli Ratner at the Pentagon not too long ago. And I also thought it was significant that um, there was a pretty high profile meeting between Kissinger and um, Defense Secretary or Defense Minister Li Shangpu. Um, that's not the same as as an engagement with, with the Biden administration, but perhaps it is a signal by the Chinese side that they are willing to consider it.
1: Rory, I feel like we're in your wheelhouse here, so let me uh, ask you what you're making of uh, the prospects for military-to-military communication that could potentially um, smooth over some potentially very uh, dangerous um, interactions in uh, airspace or water or wherever.
6: Yeah, well, I think um, maybe I'll Speak to that very briefly. Um, I think that you know the it, it's been long on the U.S. wish list to restore high level military to military contacts, and it's something that China I think sees um, you know not just b- maybe because it's a U.S. priority as one of its bargaining chips. Um, I don't know what the prospects are for restoring military to um, military crisis communications or high-level dialogue at this point. Um, I I don't think it, it hasn't been a key, I think, piece of the agenda of these meetings for obvious reasons and that it's not in the portfolio of these people to have that on their agenda. Um, I do think it's instructive that there was so much attention to asks about cooperation on fentanyl. Um, I do think that's an issue that, you know, the Biden administration, any administration understands, has deep Domestic political value um, to the points that we were, you know, this group was discussing earlier. Um, But on the prospects of like, you know, coming into conflict with China, I'd also just like to point out that we, I I think that one of the prime motivators of the Biden administration's, um, you know, impetus to deepen the relationships that they have with their counterparts in China to kind of set, you know, you know, a large ship in the ocean that be, that becomes the ballast for the relationship is because we're entering into a particularly volatile period with regard to Taiwan. Taiwan is going to have an election in January, 2024. That government is not going to take office until May, 2024. In the in-between time between that government being elected and actually taking office will be the height of the U S Republican primary campaign. I assume, um, So I do think that there is a lot of potential for volatility and that in the confluence of those events, and I do think that the Biden administration wants to make sure it has well established relationships with Chinese officials across the board to manage uncertainty over the next uh, year and a half, um, despite the U.S. election, despite the Taiwan election. I mean, I do think the Biden administration is not immune from looking at China through a domestic political lens. But they also have to do this really important job of actually governing our country in the meantime, um, while the election is being, you know, sought, probably hard fought next year. So I think it is, you know, it's not just critically important to to Europe um, or to our allies that we responsibly manage this relationship. It's also really critically important to our own country's national interests and You know, I applaud them for trying to, you know, get this relationship restarted to deepen the relationships that they have with their Chinese counterparts and, you know, to do the best that they can to bring about a successful APEC summit in November where Xi Jinping comes to the United States, um, has an opportunity to meet with Joe Biden on the sidelines to reaffirm, you know, kind of the Bali tone set. Um, And that will be a really important, you know, stabilizing factor going into the 2024 elections in Taiwan and the U.S.
1: Rory, there's a lot there, and I'm just going to have a free-for-all to see um, if anyone wants to say anything in response to you, including uh, the Taiwan issue that you brought up. But just before I let them do that, let me ask you, Rory, one follow-up, which is, What about lower level exchanges? Um, And I'm not talking about outside of the government, but just even within the government, it seems like, you know, we keep talking about these high level exchanges. But I think the critique is out there that the Biden administration doesn't seem all that interested in restarting things like the old strategic and economic dialogue. You know, all those dialogues that were happening across the federal government are all still kind of paused at this point so is that is that something that interests you like the notion of um you know restarting dialogue at lower levels of government is that at all on the horizon
6: um you know it's something that deeply interests me but no i don't think it's particularly on the horizon i think there you know many of the people who are in government in the biden administration were were in government during the obama administration i mean this is not an entirely new set of actors and there's a massive hangover, um, you know, to the strategic and economic dialogue that I I think is somewhat unwarranted. That's my personal opinion. Um, but I but I think it remains in the minds of the people who are in charge of um, doing that day to day policy work that they don't get very far with lower level exchanges. Um, you know, and and I think that it's also true that um in the intervening period where the SNED was really, really productive, which I would say is like right in that kind of 2012 to 2015 range, um, where you could really identify some some areas that were moved forward. Most, maybe most importantly for for the world, um, cooperation on climate that led to the, you know, the Paris Agreement in 2015. Um, but also cooperation on like stabilizing the global economy and all these other issues. Um, that that what's changed also in China is that lower level people have less access to um, top level decision makers. So it does bring into question, you know, like what you know would be the productivity of an SNED. I guess my um, my only other thought on this is that like maybe we shouldn't be. We should be thinking more about the SNED as a relationship-building mechanism and less as a productivity engine. I mean, it is true that in China, like you got to go all the way to the top to get a decision made, but it's not true that you. But it's it's also true, I guess, that you can gather valuable information about the policy landscape in China from these lower-level um, interactions. So. I'd argue that it's important to, to restart again, but my, um, but I don't predict that there's any appetite for that inside this administration.
1: Ian, I wonder if we can get you to weigh in on this question of lower level exchanges and maybe I'm projecting on you some of my perspectives uh, caring about at least um, people-to-people exchange uh, beyond the confines of government. I think of everyone on stage, you and me are the only ones who have actually gone to China recently. And so we've sort of lived that a little bit. I wonder if that gives you a particular perspective on this question of whether, you know, you need to have broader-based government-to-government dialogue, not just at the very top levels. Or maybe you disagree with that.
3: Uh, No, I mean, I'm sure, and I guess other people on the panel also agree that we do need more. Um, It has been somewhat disappointing to me to see um, I guess, uh, very little interest in things like, you know, restarting some of the uh, academic exchanges and other things like that. Um, I, you know, I don't know exactly what's been going on in terms of negotiations, but many of the things that or at least trying to publicly restart things like Fulbright Peace Corps and so on and so forth. Um, I guess those are just non-starters or, or the Biden administration views them as just too, you know, not important enough. Um, but it, it is it is noticeable when I went back to China, and I think you noticed this, you noted this also, I heard your Seneca uh, podcast, uh, just the, the lack of foreigners uh, in China, um, the, the and certainly the lack of foreign journalists in China. Um, these are all... You know, worrying trends to me, the lack of students um, that are going to China. I I think there needs to be some sort of a almost a national initiative in the United States to re get to get students to go back to China, maybe to or or for some foundations to try to fund professors to take students to China and and get these things kickstarted. I don't see any any real interest in in that sort of thing, uh, at least it doesn't seem to be a priority. So, uh, and I'm not sure exactly, you know, why that is, but it is a bit disappointing. And I think that long-term, those are the sort of ballast to the relationship, but um, it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere right now.
1: And, you know, I couldn't possibly agree more with you on that, but I am curious what others here... Think and maybe especially because I've had this discussion with Robert a lot recently. I'll see if Robert uh, wants to weigh in on that. And what is the landscape for restarting that level of dialogue? Well, on the people, people side, it, it, it seems to me there's still a major
4: push and pull question. You know, how are there the same number of Americans that want to go to China? Of course, those numbers were declining. Study abroad numbers were down before COVID, before the trade war, the number of Americans going to China was down. And this was before uh, China was, you know, as demonized by in American politics as it is now. It was before China uh, engaged in hostage diplomacy and, and put in place more exit bans. So even if we had the programs, uh, do we have the horses who want to go over there? And then I guess to throw it back, at you and Ian, are the Chinese genuinely interested in this? Do they really want Fulbrighters in China in the way that the Fulbright program wants the Fulbrighters to be there? Do they really want American students, not as they Amer- imagine American students would be, just eager to study Chinese and hear about, you know, but real American students? Is China still interested in that? An awful lot of the moves that they've made over the past few years, and even recently with counter-espionage laws, uh, seem to imply that China's not so interested. They talk about people to people. But is that, is that sincere? Is that openness still there? And do we still have people going? I'm sure that we would all agree that it's desirable, very undesirable, to get more people there. But even if the government were to exhort them to go in some way, given how far we've come in this very negative direction, is, is that really, really feasible? Ian, go ahead. Well, I would, I would say, no, I agree with you. I don't think they want that.
3: I mean, I think this is why those moves in 2020 were a series of own goals because having anthropology students traipsing around the, the hill tribes of, of Yunnan or some or something is exactly what the Chinese government didn't want. And that's why it was, that's why it was so valuable. Um, but at least it should have put the ball in China's court and say, okay, you want people to people exchanges here. We're going to, we propose this to that. Um, and let's, let's just try and, you know, put the pressure on them to at least, uh, and, and if they say no, then they say no. Um, I you know I, I do think China is what was striking to me also being back there was how much more isolated the place feels um how much harder it is to get around and do things um but you know I so it's it is a different era now and it wouldn't be I, was, I went back to the old, the place where I used to teach the Beijing Center for Chinese Studies which is run by a consortium of uh Jesuit universities in the United States and the number, the peak number of students was shortly after the Olympics. It was like 120 students. And when I left um, the last full year, right, in, 20, in 2019, there was something like 35 or 40 students. And I asked the director, who's still there, I said, what, what do you think would be a good number to get back to? Could, could you get back to 40? And he said, no, I think we'd be, we'd be doing really well to get back to 20. Um, so that's the sort of uh, pessimistic attitude, because it's, it's like Robert said also, it isn't, China doesn't have the, the buzz, it doesn't interest uh, 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds as much as it did. You, know, you can make a big argument about how, oh, it's the you know world's uh, second largest power and blah, 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 economic power, superpower, and so on. But that's not what actually interests most 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds. They want a place that is interesting, that has some sort of buzz and excitement. And I think that that's, um, that is hard to, to kindle. Um, But it would be at least I would like to see a little bit more of an effort made where I feel like there's been maybe I'm missing something, but I feel like there's been basically zero effort made.
1: I think I'm going to align myself broadly with you, Ian, on this. Um, And just to say that um, there is a opening to at least push and that push may not ultimately be successful along the lines that we would ideally hope for. Um, in terms of getting the kinds of exchanges that on the U.S. side we would like to see going um, back up to you know the levels that they were at before. But I don't think that the Biden administration seems that interested in even pushing. Um, so to me, you know, it's not so much that I know that if they pushed it would succeed, but at least I feel like why don't they give it a shot? Um, and they don't seem to prioritize giving it a shot. And maybe that's because they've priced in some notion that it just won't be successful. But I figure like, why not? Like, why not at least take this moment where the Chinese are at least performatively suggesting they're open to restarting those levels of exchanges? Why not see how far one can get? Um, the, the, the emphasis does seem to me to be much more on these like high level things. Um, you know, the, the visit of the you know the climate advisor John Kerry or the secretary of the treasury or Blinken himself, but um, even though in the Blinken readout, uh, along with the then, then farm Mr. Qing Gong's readout, there was discussion of restarting you know scholarly exchange, it's just hard for me to see that we're actually doing anything about that, um, in, in some kind of measurable way. Um, Yahweh, what do you think? This is a theme that you've been uh, very much interested in as well. Do you do, are you as uh, pessimistic as I guess the rest of us are about getting that kind of people-to-people and scholarly exchange going.
5: Yeah, I think it's uh, a lot more difficult than before. You know, for example, uh, starting back in 2012, we had this uh, Carter Center forum on U.S.-China relations. We always have a China partner. You know, that's Chinese People's Association uh, for Friendship with Foreign Countries, and we're going to do the meeting again uh, without. A Chinese partner. Uh, we we don't know uh, whether and how many Chinese will come, and uh, so we'll we'll have to see how things are going to evolve. I actually have a question for Robert. Uh, I I wonder if you can share with us if you know anything about Kissinger's visit. You know, did he wanted did he want to go, or China worked very hard to get him uh, in into Beijing? Just very quickly, no, I have
4: no insider's information, but I would be quite certain that he wanted to go. I think that there was a
1: confluence of interests there. So as I'm reflecting on this very rich conversation, I think um, there's been a lot of insight shared. I don't think we have a lot of clear answers. I think we've argued, you know, the push and pull on both sides. Um, We've argued, you know whether the U.S. is more the initiator or whether China is and for what reasons. Um, And I think it makes sense that this is a murky picture because it is inherently a murky picture. Um, All of that said, I want to return back to our initial point about the something that happened to the former foreign minister and ask if any of you want to close out with some reflections on what that particular incident that has been so much captured our attention over the last few days, how does that relate to the wider picture of the resetting of relations? Um, So take two murky pictures and put them together and see if we can get some clarity here at the end. Um, Let's go to Anna. Anna, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll try to marry... Um, this question with your last one about uh, lower level engagement, because, you know, I think we don't we don't know uh, if what ultimately decided the feat of Qingdong really had anything to do with any sort of espionage concerns or not. But uh, it, it goes without saying that there's deep suspicion by each country um, of the other right now. It's worse than it's been in decades. And uh, that comes back for me to something that I wanted to mention about the lower level dialogue, at least the the kind of subnational academic or people to people dialogue, which I think is a separate issue from the working level federal government engagement. Um, you know, at the subnational level, we've got the FBI warning states to be careful about Chinese investors and states passing laws aimed at protecting against real or perceived threats. At the academic level, we've had some pretty high profile investigations and prosecutions of researchers, some of which turned out to be on spurious grounds. Um, And at the people to people level, you know, I think you don't really even have to say more than uh, a Fox News commentator literally asked last week if Barbie was a communist. So, you know, we're in the midst of this very palpable China scare in the United States. And I think that uh, we should work up of the assumption that there is a similar sort of fever that has um, spread among Chinese people when it comes to the U.S. And
1: does the Gong story reinforce
2: that in your view? To the extent that it was um, either... Truly or just speculatively about espionage to the extent that espionage is a major speculation in Chinese social media. Um, yeah, I think it does reflect that.
1: That's uh it's a dark view, but it's one that I've heard from others as well. So it's uh you know, the the people who would potentially be in charge of uh a espionage. Possibility on the part of, you know, the former foreign minister. Like and again, this is speculation on speculation on speculation. But if that's what's going on, um, those people will uh, not take an incident like this um, to mean loosening up going forward. So that could be very dark. What about others? Does anyone else want to try to connect the question of the possibility of a reset of relationship to? the drama of the last few days. Do you think it matters, you know, what's going on with Gong to, to oh, the possibility of a reset? I don't know if you're directly connected, but I was struck by something, and it, it's related to what
4: Yahweh said. There seem to be very feasible speculations that if there was a indis- personal indiscretion in Gong's part, that the many people who dislike him in the foreign ministry or elsewhere use that to humiliate him and bring him down. If that's correct, I think there's a good chance that it is those people must also have known that this would make Xi Jinping look bad and that it would cause difficulty for him. And it's striking to me that they would be willing to take that risk because you didn't see these kinds of shenanigans five or six years ago. They wouldn't have dared to try it. I've also heard from a great many, both Chinese and American and third country friends who've been in China recently, who come back, that there's an awful lot of bad-mouthing Xi Jinping in private. There's a lot of sneering and criticism. And they say now the foreign minister, whoever it is, perhaps you know, not not too afraid of making him look bad. I'm just struck the days of Xi Dada may be over. Obviously, this doesn't mean I don't think there's a revolution. I don't think there's a real challenge to him. I'm not saying that he falls. But it, it, there's just something, there was a sheen uh, in the earlier days that seems to be gone, and that that may be reflected in the Qinggang affair. Yahweh, what do you think of that?
5: I think, number one, uh, both U.S. leaders and Chinese leaders need to look into the possibility of a relationship reset. They need to be serious about it. And, and the APEC meeting in November, uh, and, and the G20 meeting in September, I think these are two very good opportunities. Uh, for President Biden and President Xi hopefully to engage each other uh, at least, uh, you know, in the November APEC meeting. I think on the on, on Qingong issue, uh, I was at the, this meeting in, in Thailand with uh, many Chinese uh, scholars, and one and Chinese scholar said, you know, China is going to change. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, uh, you know, the, the disappearance of Qingong led to the publication of the circular from the state council to support the private sector uh, you know the the companies I said what's the linkage between these two is that the Qinggang issue uh, has made as Robert mentioned Xi uh, more fallible and, and he under pressure you know he will be more flexible you know flexibility is not something people associate with, with Xi Jinping but now he seems to have that and that certainly uh, will have an impact on both China's domestic uh, and and foreign policies. But in terms of you know want to reset the relationship, I see I, I think Xi Jinping always wants to have a good relationship with with the US uh, and and the frustration you can imagine how frustrated he is. you know, from Trump to Biden, that screw has been tightened and, and tightened. And that frustration was was shown uh, in his March uh, remarks, and 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 uh, disappearance certainly is going to slow down uh, this a little bit. You know, if Wang Yi continues to be as hostile to the U.S. Uh, you know as Wolf Warrior as, as he has been, uh, then this uh, reset is is going to be uh, slowed even more. So, Rory, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, you. Uh...
1: Uh, were one of the people who thought we should try to do this conversation uh, this week so he we could take advantage of the the news bubble around the Qinggang uh affair. So how do you connect the dots here between the wider story we've been discussing of whether or not there's a reset going on between the U.S. and China and who is the prime instigator behind that and then what are the implications for that from the very murky story of the Qinggang affair.
6: Sure. Okay. I've been um, talking nonstop on this topic for two and a half hours. I will do my very best to wrap this up by going quite broad and saying that what is really important in the U.S.-China relationship with regard to the reset is that it's not going to wait for current events to like sort themselves out in the meantime. And I think that all of these current events, no matter what they are, if it's the balloon incident, if it's, you know, a Gong, you know, being removed from his post, um, I can think of many others that could or might come up over, you know, the coming six to 12 months, that there should be an urgency on both sides to figure out what this relationship looks like in a stable state. Um, now and how it can weather these storms without a lot of speculation about whether or not it affects the reset in U.S.-China relations. So um, it's an impassioned plea to uh, to the leadership on both sides to really um, have a hard think, of, uh, a little bit less about reacting to things in the moment to moment, and figuring out how to build the base that you know so that those current events don't matter. Um, as much to the overall trajectory of the relationship, I think that the key to all of this is communication, and um, more meetings are better than no meetings. Um, but it remains to be seen whether or not there is endless appetite for, you know, communication alone, or whether this communication is building expectations that need to be uh, acted on or delivered um, in the coming weeks, months, and years. I, I'm, I'm relatively um positive on Wang Yi as an interlocutor. I understand that he's very tough on the US. Um that's a feature of his of his diplomacy. But I don't think that um I don't think that, you know, he'll be able to freelance too much um, you know, beyond what Xi Jinping wants. And I do think Xi Jinping wants a stabilization of this relationship so China can focus on its um, economic situation at home at, you know, integrating itself more deeply into the global uh, trading and investment uh, regime. And um, and ultimately, I think that will take precedent over, you know, some of the more nationalistic, um, some of the more nationalistic considerations of China's interests. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll leave on that um, relatively positive note that, you um, you know, we can convene in a few months and see what happens after APEC, but I do think they're going to be able to bring Xi Jinping and there will be some measure of success in, um, you know, pushing the U.S.-China relationship forward on a stable footing, um, no matter what we find out later about Qing Gong and his, um and his downfall.
1: Very well said, Rory. That's a great way to wrap up for tonight and to also anticipate uh, future conversation that we all should have uh, when we get closer to that APEC meeting. That's going to be clearly an inflection point that uh, will be good to use to kind of see where we are and get another temperature check along the lines of this conversation, the prior conversations. Um, for now, let's close the room and let me just thank you all uh, for joining tonight and thank Yahweh again for this co-sponsorship of the U.S. China Perception Monitor. Uh, We will put the recording up on that website very soon. And in the meantime, you can always just listen to it at this link as well. But for now, good night. Thank you. And talk to you all soon.